Welcome to The Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Sponsored by the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Georgine Rice. This week... The American people languish under the weight of inflation. The 9.1 number doesn't really capture all of the pain that's going on. While the administration pushes an agenda that can best be described as a revolution. It reminds us that there's a thin veneer of civilization, and if you don't invest in it, then the civilization starts to unwind. In our post-Roe world, the pro-life community faces new challenges. They're calling it abortion tourism trying to lure women to come to California for chemical or uh, procedural abortions. And the never more important message of adoption. There's less than 20,000 kids a year adopted. Back when I was adopted in the 50s, there were hundreds of thousands. We've got all this and more. I'm Georgine Rice, and I'm glad to be with you once again. I'm coming to you from Portland and my home station of KPDQ. You can hear my own program live each weekday afternoon on 93.9 FM here in Portland and online via our website at kpdq.com and also through the TuneIn radio app. Thanks for joining us. We'll begin with the economy, the rise of inflation, and the threat of a recession. It's impacting every single one of us. And for those with limited income, economic issues are more than concerning. They're downright frightening. I turn to Peter St. Ange of the Heritage Foundation. Let's start with the official data regarding the inflation rate in June, which was 9.1 percent. That's over the the past year. It's a 40-year record high. Help us to understand what that means. Right. So uh, that's something that we really haven't seen since the 1970s. Uh, A lot of us thought that we were done with those days. The problem with it is the 9.1 number doesn't really capture all of the pain that's going on. Probably the single biggest thing that they sort of play around with is uh, how they count rent and housing costs, right? So they claim that those are about 5% over the past year. Well, rents are up 20 to 25%. House prices are up 20 to 30%, depending on where you are. There is no way that shelter prices have only gone up 5%. And, you know, they, they, they have kind of this wonky way where they can uh, play with the numbers. Now, second way they do it is that if prices go up and people stop buying steak and they switch down to hamburger, right, or they keep going, they go from hamburger down to eggs, Right. As people um, sort of go into cheaper things, they just go ahead and change out the numbers and they say, oh, OK, well, now we can just forget about steak because people aren't eating it anymore. So they call this hedonic adjustment. It's very cute uh, because what it ends up doing is putting out a number that looks a lot lower than what people are actually experiencing in their life. Right. So, you know, um, leading in, uh, you mentioned some of the usual suspects there, but right, we're looking at 12% on food. We're looking at 20 to 25% on rent. Uh, there are a number of food products, you know, pork is up 17%, eggs are up 33%, and gasoline, of course, is up around 60% at this point. Yeah, it really is staggering. I was listening to an interview yesterday in which a woman said, I have become a vegetarian because I simply cannot afford to buy meat. So if you factor in what you've just described, that would... Uh, that would suggest, well, things aren't quite so bad because people just aren't buying meat. They're they're going vegetarian without really acknowledging that she's gone she's gone vegetarian by her own admission because she can't afford what she's used to eating. Exactly, and that's the key to it. She didn't go vegetarian because she liked vegetables. She went there because meat was too expensive. This 
is not a good thing. This is not a good way to control prices, to force people to start, you know, going down the curve and eating cheaper and cheaper things. I mean, that's that's how a country begins to regress to a uh, poorer state. Uh, that is not a good thing. Europeans are doing that. Um, you know, at the moment, they're uh, swearing off air conditioning. And, you know, we we do not want to go there. Now, we've heard that. Um, you know, the, the pinch that we're feeling is actually the, the, the transition we can expect to a more liberal order, that this is a, this is really good for us. It's like a parent saying, no, you can't have more candy because it's not good for you. So we're actually moving in a direction that is in our own benefit. How do you respond to those kinds of justifications for uh, the pain that people are feeling at the pump, at the grocery store and elsewhere? Yeah, it's really amazingly insensitive. Uh, you know, first off, it kind of comes from this anti-human philosophy where there are these people, they're just offended that humans exist. You know, uh, any, anything humans do, you know, if we go out and fish, you know, if we go out and hike in the woods, they're just horrified by this because Mother Earth must be purified and free of humans. Uh, but, you know, uh, sort of zooming in, when they talk about these fantasies where, you know, we'll all eat bugs and such, well, who's going to be eating the bugs it's not going to be Bill Gates. It's not going to be the billionaires who are eating bugs. They're, they're going to still have their stakes. It starts with working class, right, with people who are struggling already. So that's who's going to enjoy this utopia of theirs. They, you know, you see today with climate, right? They want to knock out uh, airfares. So, you know, they keep the riffraff out of uh, Switzerland. And then they can go in there with their private jets and enjoy it. What we feel right now with high inflation and skyrocketing fuel prices is really just one piece of a very broad agenda. From massive spikes in government spending to policies on energy, crime, the border, and everything LGBTQ, the Biden administration is pushing an agenda that is revolutionary. Don Crow turned to Victor Davis Hanson. As a matter of fact, you say the left has been tempting fate since January of 2021 applying its nihilist medicine to America on the premise that such a rich patient can ride out any toxic shock. But talk about that misassumption. And of course, its roots go deeper than just recent times. Uh, Talk about the seeds of this revolution that is unfolding in front of us. How far back does this go in recent decades that have brought us to this point? I think it originated in the 1960s when the mantra of that cultural revolution was turn in, drop out, or turn on in various orders. And the the idea was that somebody out in the shadows in the military or somebody in the dark corners who's fracking and horizontal drilling or somebody who's farming or somebody who's uh, mining or harvesting timber or or manufacturing things, they get up every morning and work, and they're very good at what they do. To such a degree, they make so much material wealth accessible that a large number of people can regulate it or adjudicate it or damn it or caricature it or divorce from actual working. We only have 62% of the labor force that's now participating of the available labor force. So, uh, And when Biden came in, that infrastructure was pretty solid despite the COVID challenges. And he thought, well, you know, I mean, his presumption was we're going to have a lot of demand we're pumping a lot of oil Trump repaired half the wall so i'll just sort of do the left-wing thing and it, and it won't be chaos because we have all of this margin of error and it didn't 
He's so discouraged oil and fracking, oil and gas, fracking horizontal drilling, that we were on a tight demand and supply equilibrium, and he destroyed it. Gas shot up to historic highs. The border was flooded once he sent the message the wall would not be continued. Catch and release was back. You could come in without being deported. And that, that attitude permeated his entire administration. So the point is now that we have uh, stagflation. I think it's much higher than the official 8.5 or 6. We use traditional metrics, and we have a collapsed foreign policy. We have one of the highest crime spikes in our history. Our major cities are filthy. They're not, they're not safe for people to walk in. And uh, it reminds us that there's a thin veneer of civilization, and if you don't invest in it, and you don't punish criminals, you don't incarcerate them, you don't worry about the stuff of life, which is food, you encourage plentiful agriculture, uh, irrigation, the tools for farmers, you restrict uh, harvesting forest fires. We've got a fire right now as I speak in Yosemite, same old, same old. We just sort of let dead trees there as fodder for bugs and birds and call that ecology. But when you don't do the things that have been done in past decades, invest, then uh, so civilization starts to unwind. And we don't have enough respect for people who produce our oil and our gas and our water and our food and our products. And the result is you, you, can't, you can't find any, everything from formula to tampons to, to uh, walk safely in San Francisco or park your car there or the, the entire civilization has been the, the nearest scraped off, and what's underneath it's pretty depressing and scary. Many thought Biden would have needed at least four or five years to wreck such a strong economy with, with, with such nihilism uh, rather than a mere 16 months. Yet nature is about to step in with a recession and perhaps even a depression. So uh, are we, what, what's it going to take for us to just <laughs> recover in the short term enough? Now, some states, the Southern especially, are dealing with the impossible, a broken border. But uh, where do you see hope in the midst of all this? I guess that's what I'm asking. Well, I think we're going to have to go through a period of rebirth. So somebody, a Paul Vogler figure, is going to have to come in and, and break inflation. And that means higher interest rates, which will curb and soften demand, which will lead to a recession, tragically. And we're in a recession. So I think the next quarter report will be the second one of negative economic growth. And then we hope that we have a soft landing and we can come back in a year or so. But this was all artificial. Everything that we've talked about is artificially self-created. If Joe Biden had just come in, and he has a he has a record of plagiarizing and appropriating the work of others, but just basically taking the Trump agenda and said it was his. You know, we, you know, I built the border, and I'm going to continue the wall, and I'm going to continue to promote energy development and Keystone, and we're going to have a big base at Bagram in Afghanistan, and we're going to keep that base, and we're going to, you know, crime. We're not going to let criminals. If he had just done all that, we would now be saying he's he's robust at 79. And, and they, I mean, the people were willing to go along with the Trump agenda, and all Biden had to do was, but instead he got in, and, he, and the people who were directing him said, you know what, 
This is one of the rare occasions in American history where we control the Congress and the presidency, and we have a chance to have a revolution. And we're going to destroy the institutions as they were and recreate new ones. And in the process, they destroy the economy, they destroy the energy sector, they destroy the criminal justice system, and they destroyed our foreign policy. And it's, going to, it's not going to be easy to, to fix it very quickly. 20 or 30 seats is not going to cut it, and the, the Republicans and the conservatives are going to have to get 50 or 60 yeah. and take the Senate back and send a message to the left that we, the American people, reject entirely this ideological crusade on your part. But it, it, it's got to be repudiated or it's going to destroy the country. Coming up, the challenges of a post row America. They're calling it abortion tourism, trying to lure women to come to California for chemical or uh, procedural abortions. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. It hasn't always been this way. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy enters our 25th anniversary year, we've remained committed to a single truth of world history, that ideas have consequences. To understand these ideas and their impact on today's politics, and to test them quantitatively, requires the unique curriculum we offer on our Malibu, California campus. Apply now for fall classes at pepperdine.edu spp. That's pepperdine.edu spp. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. The reversal of Roe versus Wade has to be one of the greatest legal victories in my adult life. I began my career doing pro-life work to champion the sanctity of life and in hope that one day I'd see Roe versus Wade overturned. After nearly four decades, what I imagined impossible has come to pass, the fall of Roe. And these days following the court's decision in Dobbs, we've seen another facet of the dark side of the pro-abortion movement, targeting conservative Supreme Court justices and their families while threatening, disrupting, and destroying pregnancy resource centers and states that are trying to set themselves up as havens for abortion, making them available at any time and for any reason. California would be at the top of that list, and regrettably, I have to include my home state of Oregon as well. Craig Roberts turned to Valerie Hill, the CEO of Real Options from KFAX, in San Francisco. We celebrate in the decision by the high court, but that also means for organizations like yours, if it wasn't busy before, it's about to get a whole lot more complicated. You are right. That is uh, exactly what we're hoping we can do is intercept and serve uh, many, many more women uh, as California leans into providing not only abortions for the women that live here, but the travel expenses, as you said, and um, they're calling it abortion tourism, trying to lure women to come to California for chemical or uh, procedural abortions. Talk to us a bit about this and uh, ways in which it's a real critical time, Valerie, for all of us to be standing with organizations like Real Options, uh, literally standing in the gap at this point. It's time to be the church. It's time to be the hands and feet of Christ and show compassion and provide excellent services and support and compassion to women and men facing unplanned pregnancies because uh, we care about parents. We care about both parents, and, and we care about the most innocent, the most vulnerable among us are the 
preborn children and uh, their little lives hanging in the balance. While these moms and dads, if they're not finding good information, it's in California the end of their lives. So we want to provide everything we possibly can to everyone that needs our services and those women that maybe have taken the chemical abortion pill. I know California's even talked about putting it in the pharmacy. Uh, it's over the counter. It's not plan B. This is not plan B. This is the chemical abortion. Valerie, if, if Californians are ultimately having to pay for abortions for everybody, includes those coming out of state, then where does the funding come from for organizations like yours that can give women information and true opportunities at choice, quote-unquote? Most of our support comes from people like me and you, Craig, individuals who care about life, who care about women, men, and students, and preborn babies, and so they invest by giving into our 501c3 at Real Options, and we appreciate the generosity of the people that support us. So there's a lot you can do to safeguard lives and save lives, as well as serving women who find themselves in desperate, life-altering decisions so that we can be there for them, we can be the safety net, and that's how the church rises up um, to partner with us. The end of Roe provides an opportunity for Christians and all who respect the sanctity of life to renew our efforts and advocacy for adoption. That's what John Knox has been doing for several years. He's the founder of the Opt Institute, and he was a guest of Bill Bunkley on Faith Talk, WTBN in Tampa. First of all, tell us a little bit about the great work of the Institute and uh, the background, and then give us a little idea about diving into the findings here. The Opt Institute is part of a nonprofit called Adoption is an Option. And I was adopted. And so while I was traveling around, I kept seeing the signs of it's a woman's right to choose. And I kept thinking it might legally be a woman's right to choose, but adoption is an option. And that's kind of where that came from. And so I got involved and started learning about what's going on with private infant adoption and learned that that there's less than 20,000 kids a year adopted. Back when I was adopted in the 50s, there were hundreds of thousands of adoptions that took place. But private infant adoption has uh, all but disappeared. Most of the adoption takes place is after they've been taken over and put into the foster care system and then adopted out. It's very difficult to to adopt an infant today. And so that's where I started getting involved in that. And then we formed the Opt Institute that looked at doing research, and it's done three major research projects to try and find out what the uh, real truth is. And that's where the report that you were referring to came from that was done by George Barna. What really influences this decision of an unplanned pregnancy, of, of adoption, not adoption, raising the child? How do women come to this decision? We learned a lot through the research. It's not surprising that family has the biggest influence on the decision that's made. But I thought family, friends, the Internet would be big influencers. The The second largest influence by far was the medical community, doctors and nurses. And I, I would not have thought that. You know, the cost to adopt a child 
in just the marketplace, and and I, I don't mean to be harsh, but in some instances, it's like big business. I mean, it could be twenty five, forty thousand dollars or more to adopt. Doesn't that play into this? Not only the women making this decision, but uh, I know there's always adoptive parents, but we could have a lot more if the price wasn't so high. And if we had a bigger supply, the price wouldn't be so high. That's exactly you're hitting on a, on a great point, Bill, and it's way too expensive. There are 700,000 families that would like to adopt. And when you only have 20,000 placed in a year, you've got adoption agencies that have waiting lists that are, I mean, they're 40 to 1 uh, in terms of the amount of people you have wanting to adopt versus what's available. If more women were willing to place a child for adoption, that cost basis would come down significantly. What's happening is is too many of them are, are not placing for adoption. A lot of those are ending up in the foster care system. One of the ways that, that we could reduce the amount of kids that end up in the foster care system is if more women placed at birth, it would uh, greatly improve the scenario on the foster care side. Let's talk about the churches. We have some churches, they are all in. A lot of churches don't want to get involved. It's not just some churches. I mean, it, it most churches, the vast majority, the churches today don't want, so many of them don't even want to talk about the, the abortion issue. It, it's too politically divisive for them. They don't, want it, they don't want to get into the political issues of dealing with abortion. But even if they don't go down that road, adoption was a wonderful area for them to talk about. Uh, I was so lucky that I got to be adopted twice. I was, um, I've been adopted into God's family, and I got adopted at birth. So many birth mothers think that if they place a child for adoption, they're going to come back later and hate them or not like them or be unhappy that they've been placed for adoption. And my experience has been the exact opposite. I didn't meet my birth mother until I was almost 40 years old. But nearly everybody I know has great admiration for their birth mother. So we started a campaign called I Am That Kid. And that's where we're continuing to tell stories about people that have been adopted. Coming up... What would it look like to actually conserve something? Rediscovering conservatism when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. It's a look at today's most compelling stories and provides responses from key conservatives in media and politics. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Georgine Rice. The radical and even revolutionary agenda being promoted in our nation has forced a lot of people to wake up. But as we push back, we should be aware of a movement on the right that isn't necessarily conservative. Our next guest has made the case for a grounded conservatism in his book, Conservatism, A Rediscovery. Yarom Hazoni, an Orthodox Jew, joined our friend Albert Moeller, an evangelical Christian, on his podcast, Thinking in Public. Why this particular book at this time? Well, I've been involved with uh, conservative things 
most of my adult life, I mean, since I was in college, even a little bit before. And I have this feeling that in a lot of ways, times have become more desperate than they've ever been on the one hand. And on the other hand, the clarity of the conservative message, I think, has faded to the point that it's very uncertain how are conservatives supposed to offer aid and assistance in very, very difficult times, you know, both in the United States and in, in other democratic countries in, in Europe and elsewhere. And one thing that I know that especially the younger people who have some kind of an, an impulse in the direction of conservatism or the right more broadly, I think that one thing we hear from them all the time is what is conservatism ever conserved? It, it's not intended to be a hostile uh, remark, although some, you know, sometimes it sounds like that. I, I think it's a genuine question. If we, you know, uh, look at the last couple of generations and we we see the, the the way in which Western nations have abandoned God and Scripture, uh, but also family and uh, loyalty to to the nation, to the independence of nations. At, at this point, man and woman honor and sanctity. I mean, the Sabbath, you can just go on and on. I think it's completely reasonable to ask, what is conservatism conserved? And the purpose of this this book, you know, rather than uh, being an apology for, you know, how great conservatism uh, has been in recent years, what what I try to do is is to ask what I think is the, the necessary question. What What would it look like to actually conserve something? to actually construct a society and, in fact, uh, individual personal lives that would be capable of conserving things. And I want to ask, what happened that led you to believe this book really needed to enter the public conversation at this time? I, I think you're describing it all correctly. I mean, I my first book is already 20 years old. It was called uh, The Jewish State, The Struggle for Israel's Soul. And at that time, America looked really sturdy and, and, and Europe looked OK, too, and in a lot of ways. And uh, the state of Israel, which is, you know, I, I, I live with my wife and kids in Jerusalem, and that's where we make our home. And uh, the state of Israel seemed like it was on, on the edge. And the question that I addressed in that first book was, where have all the traditions gone? You know, there, there was this uh, new liberalism that was uh, making life in Israel, to my mind, uh, uh, unrecognizable and dangerously so. Uh, so th- that's actually where I, I began the conversation. And it, 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 it's a little strange, but now 20 years later, it feels as though those same issues which were so troubling about Israel have overtaken America. And, you know, obviously Israel is a small country. It's very different from the United States in a lot of ways. But at the same time, there is something that uh, that unites all of the, the Western democracies, all, all, all of the, uh, the the nations that have in one way or another um, come out of this, this, this great Anglo-American tradition of, of uh, biblical religion and nationalism. And we all are facing a common opponent that is mutating and getting, you know, more difficult to handle uh, with every passing year. Um, I think that we can say that in 2020, I think it's fair to say that in 2020, 2020 was a watershed, and it might have been a watershed even without the coronavirus. The the main reason 2020 was a watershed is because the uh, hegemony of liberal ideas the uh, political conditions in which you could count on most people of 
the left and the right to agree on certain basic liberal premises, which which had been agreed upon, you know, basically since World War II. That came to an end in 2020. I, I mean, I'm not the, the liberalism is still a very powerful framework, but I think realistically it is being severely challenged and successfully from from the left by by this kind of neo-Marxist wokeism. And I also think that many non-liberal views, some of them are, are I think, are, are positive and some of them are positively awful, uh, are also appearing on the right. And in a way, everything is up for grabs now. The, the traditions have really been worn down to the point that almost anything can happen. And uh, so I felt, you know, this is just the you know, it's the last moment to be able to write this book and to and publish it and, and feel like I, I put out there what I have to say. Coming up. It's two generations after God and Bible were asked to remove themselves from the American public schools. And people can't tell the difference between a man and a woman anymore. More on conservatism, a rediscovery when the Christian outlook returns in a moment. Stay with us. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy enters our 25th anniversary year, we've remained committed to a single truth of world history, that ideas have consequences. To understand these ideas and their impact on today's politics, and to test them quantitatively, requires the unique curriculum we offer on our Malibu, California campus. Apply now for fall classes at pepperdine.edu spp. That's pepperdine.edu spp. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. In his new book, Conservatism, A Rediscovery, Yarom Hazoni has done some significant work on what it means to be a conservative, including making the necessary distinction between a conservative and a classical liberal, a label that's often used to refer to our nation with an emphasis on individual freedom and liberty. Let's continue with more of the conversation with Yarom Hazoni, the guest of Albert Moeller, on his Thinking in Public podcast. I, I want to come back to two arguments made in your book. You go at the fact that uh, the conservatism and classical liberalism are not the same thing. And that this is a confusing issue. It was very confusing to me as a teenager. I could understand the claims of classical liberty. But by the time you got even to the Reagan years, there were people saying, no, we're, we're the true liberals. I mean, even Reagan played with that a little bit himself, having been a liberal Democrat at one point. We're the true liberals. You know, this classic liberal tradition. And one of the things I most appreciate about your uh, your indictment is that you go right at John Locke. In terms of Locke's understanding that the only binding relationships on earth are those of consent, I mean, that destroys civilization. It, it doesn't further it. Yeah. Again, I think I think there's a lot of people who, who just get upset because you're just not supposed to criticize uh, Locke, uh, there's it, it's an it's an image of the American founding that was born in the 1940s, 1950s, which says this isn't a nation with traditions uh, many centuries old. It's an idea that, that was invented by brilliant people during the Enlightenment, it, meaning to say, you know, it, it in the right. 1700s, human beings for the first time in history figured out you know, the great truths that are universally true. Before then, it was all basically darkness. And so that picture turns Locke and, and, and Kant and Spinoza and, and, and Rousseau's on the social con contract. It turns, you'll think I'm exaggerating, it actually turns these books into a new scripture. 
and the books are are used in schools you know of course if schools where where bible and god are, are no longer taught these books are used in high schools in universities to advance a new religion which has no no need for scripture and no need for tradition and no need for god now i'm not saying you know that that was john locke's goal that would be a preposterous thing to say you know again i i think locke has a place is a place in the american founding and in the anglo-american tradition but you can't turn him into a prophet you can't turn his view of reason into god himself or into god's word that's a step that is it's not just too far. It, it, it puts an end to the entire tradition. And I, I think we, we don't have any choice but respectfully to resist this. And in a Lockean sense, you know, uh, uh, if everything comes down to consent and uh, the consent of the governed, uh, which means not just the government, but I think in the larger sense, consent to the culture, then we're just going to have to figure out how we can give enough consent to, to, to try to bring out the better thing. So just to, to I mean, you, you and I both know people who claim the conservative mantle, who made the argument that we should ad- adopt and endorse same-sex marriage, because after all, uh, marriage is a conserving institution, and the liberation of sexual impulses is a given now. So all, all we need to do is, and must do, or can do, is to, to try to restrain that within certain bounds. I think both of us would agree. Marriage can't be anything other than the union of a man and a woman. Yes, yeah, certainly. It, 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 and, and consent to that it could be something else actually won't make it something else. You know, I, th- I think an awful lot of people that used to be called conservative are now just living in an intellectually uh, foolish dream. You know, this issue of consent, it's already taken up by Selden and Hale and other. I mean, we're talking about, you know, many centuries ago uh, that, uh, that, that great English Protestant statesmen took up the question of can our society really be based on consent? And their argument was that if the only thing that's holding together our society is consent, then you you also have to say that when you stop consenting, then the force of those obligations stops. I think that argument was being made at the very dawn of liberalism by conservatives. And I don't think it's ever been responded to. There has to be something other than the consenting individual. If, if it's only the consenting individual, then you've turned the consenting individual into God. He, he alone decides what obliges him. The theory of consent is taught as though it's a theory of moral obligation, but it's not. It's a theory of the freedom from moral obligation. Right. And, and if you extend that beyond the individual and you say the consent, say, of groups or societies, uh, uh, again, consent can only get you so far because, again, you can consent to the fact that people are pregnant, but that doesn't make people pregnant. And yeah. so, you know, I, I see these toxins release, especially among younger Americans or younger people in the Western world. They're, they're fed this ideology of liberation in which consent is, whether it's sex or for that matter, anything else or government, that's all that matters. But, you know, they can get together and consent to whatever they may choose that doesn't change reality. Yep. You know, reality, as I understand it, it's not only about what objects there are, it's also about what obligations you have. There are versions of this argument that try to avoid God. You you hear this in academia that, you know, well, we have the natural law and it obligates us. So, you know, the beauty of it is you don't really need God. And I really think that's a mistake. It's a mistake because, again, this is going back to this issue of, you know, how smart are we? 
I think we just need more humility about our ability to figure it all out. The place that God plays in sort of the economy of a religious person's thoughts is that whenever you have a principle that you're tempted to say, wow, I know this for absolute certain, I can just rule the world on the basis of this principle because it's so obviously true, a religious person bumps into God and feels, you know, I'm just going too far. I just can't know that much. There's a point at which I have to say that there are things that are beyond me. And God in the scriptural tradition, people talk about the guide rails are coming off. And the reason the guide rails are coming off is because those guide rails were the tradition of common sense that we inherited through thousands of years of studying scripture and placing ourselves in a humble relationship with the God of scripture. And you can't just do without it. I mean, here we are. It's two generations after God and Bible were asked to remove themselves from the American public schools, and people can't tell the difference between a man and a woman anymore. You have to think about that. I mean, people are using reason. You can't say they're not reasoning. You know, all these professors writing these theories, they they have reason coming out of their ears. The problem is not that they're not reasoning. The problem is that their reason is is detached from any kind of humility about the demands of reality, as you say, but also about the demands of a God who, who knows a thing or two that we don't know. Coming up, what are we conserving? The real test of whether you're a conservative is if you're a conservative person. A few more minutes with Jerome Hazoni when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. In just 10 minutes, I can zip through 10 stories that help me start my day and help shape where I go with The Mike Gallagher Show. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. As we consider the book, Conservatism, A Rediscovery, and Jerome Hazoni's efforts to renew our understanding of a grounded conservatism, The obvious question is, what am I conserving? And am I playing a part in conserving what is right and good? Well, let's pick up with more of the conversation between Albert Moeller and Jerome Hazoni. The bravest argument you make in your book is not the argument for nationalism. It is not the argument for the Anglo-American conservative uh, tradition. The bravest argument you make in your book is one that I have not seen anyone make in decades. And that is that conservatism requires conservative lives. I'd really invite you to spell that out just a bit. Well, another part of the liberal framework is this idea that government is one thing and individuals, private individuals are another thing, and there's no connection between them. That that just isn't true. Government and society are completely intertwined. There is no way to separate them. And what that means is that, you know, we have a whole generation of very well-meaning conservative activists who think that if they stand up for, I don't know, let's say uh, uh, pro-family policies or uh, oppose abortion, I mean, these are obviously important things, but they think that if they're, if they're speaking on the right side and if they're, you know, holding the right signs, then they're conservatives. 
But there is no separation between public life and private life. The real test of whether you're a conservative is if you're a conservative person, if you're leaving a conservative life. Either you are plugged into a society at this point, it, it, it's usually an, you know, an Orthodox uh, Christian congregation or Orthodox Jewish congregation. It, either you're plugged into the chain of transmission so that older people who are handing down things, genuine things from the past that they know about are there to teach you. Either you're you're there and receiving it, or you're not actually a conservative. You're a, a liberal with some conservative opinions. And I think that the argument about what public policy needs to be, it has, has to happen. But the real argument, the real decisive place where the future of, of American Western democracy is going to be decided is when these young people in their 30s who want to save their country, their, their, their tradition, but are living completely liberal lives. You know, they, they just keep putting off getting married and they get, keep putting off having children. And, uh, you know, it, serving in the military is, you know, is, is just too much of a burden. And, you know, they would feel like complete uh, jokers if they, you know, if they actually opened the Bible and studied it. All of this, it, it has a huge, huge impact a person who is not plugged into the tradition, not part of the chain of transmission, doesn't really know what a conservative is. Thank you for joining us for the Christian Outlook. If you enjoyed the program, be sure to mention it to a friend and send them to the ChristianOutlook.com. Encourage them to sign up for our podcast. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Shubin and producers David Pouchon, Tim Grantner, and James Blend, I'm Georgine Rice. Join us again next time for the Christian Outlook. She expected the world.